I remember the feeling coming over me, the feeling of what I had done was was good. You know, I remember that. I, I remember that the confirmation, if you would, of the Holy Spirit, even all these years, I remember that experience. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Pastor Oscar T. Moses, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Salt Lake City. Pastor, thank you so much for making time. Thank you, Steve. I'm delighted to be here. I've been anxious to get to know you. I've been following in the paper. You know you have followed a legend. Sure. Pastor Francis Davis, who yes. has really uh, laid a great foundation here. Absolutely. And yet you come with your own gifts, your own background, and I'm just excited to see how your life unfolds and your congregation's yes. experience. Tell me just a little bit about what kind of faith environment you grew up in. Well, Steve, I grew up on the south side of Chicago about four miles from the church that I attended all of my life, my grandfather was the pastor there. Mm. And so uh, they moved to that area of Chicago around 1961. I was born in 66 in our home, as I said, was probably about two or three blocks away from the church. So we grew up in a God-fearing home, my brother and I. Uh, We lived in an apartment building that my paternal grandparents owned. They lived on the first floor. And my mother, my father, and my brother, and I lived on the second floor. And it was a praying home. It was a praying environment. I recall as a kid, my grandfather was, we considered him a prayer warrior. Hmm. We could actually hear him praying through the walls for us at nighttime. You know, he would pray for it, call us all by name, praying for us. Did that give you confidence? Did that do something for you? Yes, yes. It would have to. It did. It did. And so we experienced that all of our lives. And so needless to say, when when the Lord called him home, you know, we felt we had lost our intercessor, but the Lord was actually developing us in the areas of prayer. So I grew up in a prayer-based home of faith. My mother was a director in the choir. My father was a deacon of the church. My brother and I served junior usher board, junior choir, grandfathers, the pastor. So grew up in a faith, a community of faith, where church was a very vital part of our lives. Growing up in an environment, that's like a fish in water. Sure. But at some point, the fish has to notice the water. Mm-hmm. Did you have a turning point or a realization or some or a questioning time of thinking, well, okay, I grew up in this, but is it real? Did you always know and believe in God? You know, I have some very peculiar, <laughs> strange memories growing <laughs> up. We grew up in an area that was economically challenged on the south side of Chicago. It's a very high crime area, has been for years, and this was the community that I grew up in. So I didn't grow up, per se, in a fishbowl. You know, I still had to interact with children and you know, within the community. But the church experience, the faith experience was unique for me because I, being involved in church and being around, you know, such spiritual influences in my life, I accepted Christ at five years old. Now, I was not exactly sure of what I was doing. But I do recall the experience when at our church, after you would accept Christ, you would get baptized in the evening time. We did it in the evening time. And then we would have communion right after as as a way of fellowshipping us into the church. And so my grandfather, Reverend Joseph Allen, he conducted the baptismal. My father and my uncle baptized me. I was probably about five years old. 
I remember the experience. I remember uh, after my father dried me off and got me dressed, we were going back into the sanctuary for communion. And I asked my dad, can I go downstairs to use the restroom? And he said, sure. So I went down there by myself. It was evening time. I was too short to drink from the water fountain. Mm. So I had to get a chair, step on the chair, and drink from the water fountain. I remember the feeling coming over me, saying, not saying, but the feeling of what I had done was was good. Mm. You know, I remember that. I, I remember that. The confirmation, if you would, of the Holy Spirit, even all these years, I remember that experience. And so I think that that experience coupled with some other experiences in life have kind of shaped my faith. The church has been somewhat of the crucible of my faith as well. Being a part of the first family and seeing the the personal pain of pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm fifth generation preacher and my grandfather pastored that church and, you know, being so close to the family. So, you know, I saw a lot. And a lot of my worldview is shaped around the faith that that has been invested in me as a child. I read in an interview something that delighted me, which was uh, you headed off to college, I believe, and your grandmother giving you a Bible. (laughs) Will you tell me about this? So my late grandmother, uh, Bobby Lou Moses, she was a gem. She was a God-fearing, (laughs) foot-stomping grandmama. (laughs) And before I went to college, she gave me my first Bible. And the inscription, she wrote her, her name and, and underneath that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I didn't really think nothing of it then, you know, but as time went on and I would go to that Bible and go to that passage of Scripture, a light came on. And so the Scripture meant more for me than I ever could have imagined. It has been a, a theme passage for me, trust in the Lord all thine heart, lean not into thine own understanding, all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And so as I look back over my life and the pilgrimage of faith, I've been trusting the Lord all of my life, probably not to the degree that I am now, but I really believe that my trust in him has directed my path. And I can't help but think as you share your experience uh, after your baptism of suffer the children to come unto me, Mm -hmm. that there were open arms. Yeah, no doubt. That's beautiful. Yeah. But your path did not go directly to the pulpit. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> did you feel a call to do something else? Oh, or, sure. Or? I, I'm a firm believer that our, our assignments in life are not our decisions. They are our discoveries. And so I had passion for to go into law enforcement. You know, high school, I played sports, uh, football, and um, my father passed when I was 10 years old. Mm. You know, I think there was a sort of a father loss there and acting out for a little while. And so high school, played football, and, you know, was kind of popular in my own right. And I went to college and just went bananas, you know. Uh, (laughs) Did everything I was big enough and bad enough to do. I call the college experience actually my wilderness experience. You know, I, I strayed. I strayed from the Lord. But I think because church was so ingrained in me, I'm just going to be transparent with you. You know, we would go out and party and, you know, and drink all night, but would make our way to the church. A friend of mine would go with me. And, you know, I laugh at it now because we probably lit that front roll up in church. (laughs) But we were there, you know. And, uh, you know, I have a couple of friends now that remind me. They said, man, we knew you were headed down this path because, you know, you would drag us with you to church on Sunday mornings. We'd be in there knocked out sleeping. The preacher would be like, wake them guys up over there. (laughs) I was on that five-year plan down in uh, SIU in Carbondale. 
Wasn't serious about school, just did enough to get through. After I graduated with an, my undergrad degree was in criminal justice, not even trying, I picked up mid-semester courses because I kept dropping courses. And it's just ironically, I, my minor was religious studies. Mm-hmm. And so after college, I applied for some um, law enforcement jobs. While waiting, I did some social work for about eight or nine months. And then uh, I got called to Cook County adult probation, uh, intensive probation supervision. And so I was a field officer, specialized unit that monitored the activities of felons. And so I did that for about three or four years until I decided to go further into Chicago Housing Authority Police Department. And that was a unique experience because uh, the Chicago Housing Authority Police Department was a, a department that was created to supplement the regular Chicago Police Department because um, there was a a great deal of police service that was needed in the housing developments. Uh, Chicago police, they were not servicing that area. They were bypassing calls, not answering the calls. So we were kind of like the Green Beret of Mm. police. And so we trained a little bit different, and uh, we were assigned to the Chicago Housing Authority developments. And so some of the most notorious projects, we call them, but they're housing developments, I was assigned to those, uh, Cabrini Green, north side of Chicago, Robert Taylor, State Street Court in Chicago, the Ida B. Wells home on the south side of Chicago. I worked all of them. The first couple of years, it was really quite interesting because being a young police officer, I was full of excitement, wanted to get involved, and they had no problem pushing me right in there. Within the first year, I was doing undercover buys. We did role reversals where we would dress up like the... (laughs) drug dealer and, you know, undercover stuff like that, and put into some pretty dangerous positions the first couple of years, you know. And so after a while, uh, I got tired of fighting every day. You know, we had to fight to establish territory on certain sides of this. It gets old. And so um, when I was placed assigned to Cabrini Green, and Cabrini Green is probably one of the most notorious, um, I was assigned there. And um uh, I worked the third watch. So the third watch was from probably 3 to 11. They call that the power watch. After that, I was placed on midnights. And that experience picked my prayer life back up. <laughs> you know, And, uh, you know, putting some very, you know, day, my, my prayer life picked up. And so uh, all of a sudden, the the more I became more connected with God, the desire to continue in that, it just kind of diminished. And so I ended up doing some other things, like I became the media spokesperson. Then after I accepted my call to ministry, I became the assistant chaplain to the department. And then in 99, the entire department was dismantled. And so having accepted my calling on on the police department, I worked with my grandfather at the church, and he was very insistent that I got back in school. And I'm glad that he did that. Went to a McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, and I know I'm going on and on, but when I was in high school or college, I I just I I knew I was smart, but I just didn't apply it. I had a teacher tell my mother once, Oscar will never be a scholar. He told my mom that, and she never forgot that. When the Lord called me to ministry, kind of transform my thinking and my mind, my heart, I did very well in seminary. Great grades and, you know, nothing less than a B all three and a half years. And so I, I say, you know, maybe I, I'm not as <laughs> challenged <laughs> So I went on to seminary. After that, my granddad retired in 2002. I became pastor of Mount Hermon. 
where I pastored for 17 and a half years, went back to United Theological Seminary to pursue a doctor in ministry in 2011. Life has evolved. So, What was that experience for you of, quote, receiving a call oh, well, to ministry? In the Baptist tradition where uh, I was born and raised, you're under a pastor, and you let that pastor know that you feel that you've been called to ministry, and that's what I did. It was a feeling you had, an experience you had? Uh, while on the police department, and as I said, your calling is not your decision, it's just, it's just your discovery. I had Sundays off, or even when I worked midnights, I would come to church on Sunday. My granddad would be in the pulpit struggling, preaching, because he couldn't hardly see. Hmm. His eyesight was going, and I felt so terrible for him. And so my prayer was, Lord, send him some help. Lord, send him some help not knowing that I was the help that the Lord was eventually sending. So I discovered that your gift usually centers around something that you have have a problem with. And so my gift unknowingly to me is that I wanted people to be able to understand the Word of God, that they would be receptive of the Word of God, that that our church would be a church that built disciples, you know, through the Word of God. And so I started listening to preaching more. You know, I would gather tapes here, and I just wanted to hear preaching because my grandfather couldn't really read the manuscript, and I, I needed a word. And so I became more enthralled in listening to different preaching styles and whatnot. And so as I listened to the word and began to grow and study in the word, I would hear someone preach, and I'd go and look at the text. And I would study that text to see, you know, how would that apply to me? And so over a period of time, you know, I started to feel, I say, well, you know, Lord, are you trying to, and, you know, life became uncomfortable. Some of the things that I, the lifestyle that I probably used to, it started to become uncomfortable and things started to drop off and other things started to change in my life. So I'm getting a sense that the Lord is calling me to preach. So I, I go to my granddad and I tell him, he makes me pray for a whole year before I could, and wow. he, he says, go back and pray for the year. And, and what he told me at that point was really what made me so serious about it. He said, now I want you to be sure that the Lord is calling you to preach because when you come out here, you, you step into the deep end. And that scared me. He said, you, you're in the deep water when you accept this. And so um, there were many nights uh, that I spent crying, praying to the Lord, give me confirmation, uh, uh, show me a sign, you know. And so over the course of that year, you know, time would not permit for me to tell you the experiences that I've had. I get even misty, you know, emotional, just thinking about God affirming the call of ministry in my life. But when I finally accepted the call, the final thing that gave me confirmation was I was one Sunday night in a church service and a guest minister was preaching from New York. The title of the sermon was, sermon was Birth Pains. It was probably 3,000 people in that church and I thought he was talking directly to me. And after he preached that sermon, he gave the invitation to discipleship and the choir sung a song entitled, Whatever Comes, Just Keep Your Arms Around Me. I felt the spirit hit me right there. Grown man crying like a baby, people looking at me. But I, I knew at that point the Lord had given me confirmation. And so when I finally went to my granddad and made the confession, it was like a weight came off of me, you know, and that began the ministry. So I preached my first sermon in August of 96, and that's, that's how it began. You've already mentioned one favorite scripture, that, mm-hmm. that one from Proverbs that stuck with you. Sure. Is there a story or a parable, even uh, that at the moment is kind of something that you're centered on or is sort of a touchstone or a thing you return to? Yeah, I, you know, that uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has been a touchstone, but also 
Romans 8 and 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so the good, the bad, the ugly, even the things that we thought that were harmful in the past or I thought was harmful in the past, it was a part of God making me stronger, increasing my faith and increasing my testimony. And so I look at the church again as the the crucible of my faith. And I've had some painful experiences in church as well as out of church, but it's through the church experience that my faith has been stretched. I go to that passage as well, Romans 8 and 28. It's all working good. What are things that you do personally? I mean, as a pastor, I'm guessing you have to be sure that you're filling the vessel before before oh, you can pour out. Absolutely. Are there things that are particularly helpful to you in feeling connected to the Spirit? Yeah, well, uh, my prayer life has, I thank God for prayer life. And over the years, it has increased. I, I it, Prayer is essential. I can't function or pray or, or preach and feel that uh, I've been connected with the Lord without prayer. And so I have to spend that time alone in prayer to hear from God through Scripture or uh, even through just quietness. The Lord speaks in so many different ways. And so every day it consists. And if I if I miss prayer, you know, I feel as though I've, I've missed having a conversation. And so uh, and there, there are times then that circumstances may have happened where I may not have may not have had the time that I felt to spend as much time in prayer. So. But I think my prayer life is, is strong enough, whereas if I'm rushing one day, the Lord won't. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not going to hang up yeah. on the connection. Yeah, prayer is important. You mentioned that the Lord speaks to us in so many different ways. Sure. I certainly have had that same experience. Mm-hmm. And I found that sometimes I've, been, uh, I've had to fight a little bit of envy mm-hmm. with people. I thought, how do they get these answers? How do they sense the direction so clearly? Yeah. And then I've had to just sort of let go of that and spend time thinking, how is he speaking to me? That's right. Because he made me to be who I am. Mm-hmm. There is a way he reaches me. It's through music. It's through a couple other things that are very specific to me. When you do that, you feel like he's with you. Yes. I think that's a beautiful feeling mm-hmm. and that you have a friend there. Absolutely. Well, I love that. Yeah. That's beautiful. A couple follow-up questions here. <clears throat> sure. And in this current climate – with Black Lives Matter, with policing coming into procedures coming into question and sure. attitudes, ingrained attitudes. You had some experience early on as a young officer. Yes. With seeing, do you mind sharing this story? Well, the police department is a very interesting system. When I worked in um, Chicago Housing Authority, of course, we were servicing marginalized people, poor people that were, for lack of a better word, a lot of them were hopeless. And so they resorted to a lot of vice and crime and things. You know, when people have no hope, they do things that are not sensible. And so um, I noticed that as a young officer that many of the young white officers that came on the department were not familiar with the black community. Some of them were fresh out of Desert Storm. What I noted, with not all, but some, is that they did not view the residents as human. They did not. They were the other or, or an adversarial? In an adversarial sense, um, it, it was the same mindset. I guess I, I, I was never in the service, but many of the guys that I worked with on the police department that were not familiar with the African-American experience, they're coming from a Eurocentric perspective. After they left the service, there was no difference in how they saw the enemy on the battlefield 
than how they saw the residents in public housing. They did not see the humanity. They did not see, they did not understand the culture or the pain. And so what I saw is what I experienced were people whose lives did not matter and they were treated in such regard. And that if there was not a voice speaking up or saying something, that this type of behavior will become so uh, normalized that it just seemed a part of the everyday routine of, of policing from some perspectives. You had to stand up. I did. I did for this, uh, for that a couple, and a couple of experience. One experience was, was, was uh, we were on a call en route going to a location. And at that time I had, and she's a good friend and I don't want to cast any bad light on her. Now, this was just a mistake that she made earlier. And uh, when I first uh, was a probationary police officer, she was math TO beautiful person, white lady. I had two female partners and uh, we were going to a call and the young man was just being belligerent, jumps in front of the car just to be, you know, to be a distraction. So we stopped the car and we conducted a field interview, arrested him, detained him, put him in the car. And as I was driving, my partner, my FTO, turned around and assaulted him while he was handcuffed. And I knew that if I had not said anything right then and there, that there would be no respect for me and this could perhaps continue. And so I stopped the car, pulled over, and I just told him, don't, don't ever do that again. And we eventually let the guy go, just using discernment. But that established some boundaries there. And it also established a level of respect between her and I. And we're good friends to this very day. And I think it was a teachable moment for me as well as a teachable moment for her. And so I think that there comes a point when you have to speak up. If not, you are just as guilty in certain instances as the perpetrator of crime. So that was one experience that I do recall. It's like Reverend King saying, or Dr. King saying that what he was most worried about was the people who would be silent. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you have a voice and you don't say anything, you just, you're complicit. This is a very personal question. So if, uh, if we wanted, I've got lots of other questions, okay. but in an African-American congregation, Christian congregation, people are having experiences every day with, uh, with white people or other races who also are members of Christian congregations. What does that do to people's faith to see people claiming brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ acting with prejudice sure. consciously or unconsciously and not even realizing that? Yeah. So I believe that everyone has a worldview, whether it is right or wrong, it's your worldview. And the worldview consists of the cultural soul that has shaped your educational, emotional, environmental scripting. All of that plays a part in it. And so from a biblical perspective, I see the scriptures from a hermeneutic, uh, from the lenses of those who have been marginalized. I can relate to the children of Israel coming out of the flesh pots of Egypt. I could relate to those and understand the experience of the woman with the issue of blood, health care. I could relate to blind Bartimaeus, marginalized, not seen, the invisible man. You know, I can relate because I see scriptures from a hermeneutic that places me in the midst of the people that I read about in scripture. Whereas uh, the late Miles Jerome Jones says that one of the differences and the challenges between African-American preaching and and probably the white preacher is that we are preaching from the midst in the midst of what Jesus said, where two or three, I'll be in the midst of them. Jesus was in the midst of poor people. He was in the midst of hurting people. He was in the midst of people 
who did not receive equal distribution of wealth, of power, or opportunity. Whereas a lot of times, even though we might be all Christian, we might not be seeing those scriptures from that hermeneutic, from the lens, from the center. And whereas it becomes more comfortable for us to interpret scripture, not from the midst, but from the periphery. If I'm interpreting scripture from the periphery, it kind of removes me away from the pain that the people from the midst are experiencing. And it gives it might have a different hermeneutic that really can sustain my position or location in life. And I can feel justified in that. And so as an African-American pastor with a not the Calvary Baptist Church is is a multicultural church It's predominantly African-American. But I have the challenge of preaching to people a gospel that reaches all people, challenges people, that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable, that we might see the Christ in all of us that exists from a standpoint where we are willing to care for the least, be concerned about those who are not being fairly treated. God loves justice. Jesus has always been on the side of the, of the poor. And I think that we have to continue to preach that and challenge those who confess to be Christians to share power, to share power. And I think that that would be, I think that now is a good time for these conversations to continue. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the pot is being stirred Absolutely. definitely right now. Yeah, it's pliable. I mean, you know, we got to bend the iron while it's hot. And uh, I think now is a good time for these conversations to, to increase and continue and for us to be challenged on both sides of the fence. From my perspective, my challenge to the white church is to share the power. For instance, we have partnered with Southern Baptist conventions, as I'm talking about as a Christian church, and we have shook hands on many different things. But the equal distribution of power means that I could see more people looking like me in your leadership role. Mm. You see, or on the board of making decisions, uh, more African-Americans from that standpoint. Would because then that voice is heard and that experience is heard. Sure. Mm. Yeah. A very important point. Very much. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I am. How hope- could you be a preacher if you're not? I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's oxymoronic. Yeah, yeah I, I am hopeful uh, because I believe that hope is being defiant in the face of resistance and to believe that God is able to do exactly what he said he would do, not to lose sight of what God's promises are. I think your life has taught you to trust that sure. way. I think of your, you talked about your grandfather hearing him pray through the wall as oh, a prayer yeah. warrior. Mm-hmm. I think you followed in his footsteps. Yeah, absolutely. Are there questions you've asked, direction you've sought, even though you've had answers and direction that you're still waiting on, that you just wait in faith? Oh, God. Yeah, I'm still trying to, I'm I'm still waiting for God to connect all the dots to Utah. I know he sent me here. I believe that. I, I have no doubt with that. You know, I need to discover what this assignment really entails. You know, I believe that whatever it is, the Lord has equipped me for such a time as this. I don't believe that anything is by accident. Even our meeting, I think that has been pre-planned out and that the relationships that are being established are for God to fulfill his purpose in my life as well as yours. And so I, I think that when I say the iron is hot for such a time as this, I believe that that our assignments in life are time sensitive. You know, there's a window (laughs) that God gives us to do what we have to do, and it should be task-oriented. My hands should be assigned 
to this for this amount of time for the purpose of glorifying God, that what we do now will echo in eternity years later. And so I, I believe that for whatever the reason is, the Lord has brought me here, I do believe that it's time sensitive. And I, I reference Esther when uh, her uncle told her, for all you know, you could have been called to the kingdom for such a time. as Just that. for this. Yeah. Yes. Is there something I should have asked you, but I don't know to ask? I think you're a great interviewer. You make me feel comfortable. And I know I'm comfortable when I start talking and rattling off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you are a great interviewer. And... Uh, and uh, you've made me feel very comfortable, and I appreciate that. We're heard all around the world, this program. But since I happen to live in the area where this congregation, Calvary Baptist, is, yes. I'll be coming to join oh, you. Oh, I love as, it. When we can get together again. Absolutely. And I'm thrilled that you're here. Thank you for having that me. That congregation is an anchor for many people. Absolutely. And it feeds people literally mm-hmm. and spiritually. Yeah. It's a blessing to the community. Can I say this, uh, Steve? Reverend France Davis is just a giant to me. And I, I didn't even really know him before I came down here. But to see the legacy and the foundation that he's laid at Calvary Baptist Church, it, it's quite intimidating, you know. And so very early off, I, you know, I asked the Lord, you know, Lord, just give me strength to be the best version of Oscar T. Moses that I could be because France Davis cannot be duplicated. He's just such a God-fearing, God-sent man that, you know, I thank God that he allows me to kind of elbow my way into his life <laughs> so, as a mentor. And so he, he's not a man of a lot of words, so I kind of watch him, kind of watch how he operates, and I've learned from, from that experience as well. So I just wanted to say I'm thankful that the Lord placed France Davis at Calvary to lay a strong foundation and to create a model of ministry. And he's given you a lifetime of experiences, like you say, I'm here, what are they for? Yeah. That's beautiful. My favorite thing about interviewing people of faith is that I see God working in people's lives, every denomination. Yes. That is a very hopeful, encouraging thing to me. Absolutely. Pastor Oscar T. Moses from Calvary Baptist Church, thank you for speaking with me today in thank Good you. Faith. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you so very, very much. And again, you made this interview so easy, so thank you. That's our time for today. Thanks to Pastor Moses for generously sharing his faith and experience. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.